I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, before I talk about the record, I, I, the, the various points I should make. Um, I found in Namur in Belgium um, a shop which sold the most um, recondite eau de vie um, known to humankind. And one of them was an eau de vie made with celeriac. And I brought it back to England and Chris turned up and it disappeared. Um, I don't know, probably can't remember it, actually. Um, do. You do. <laughs> the other thing, uh, talking of Jimmy Connors in uh, this restaurant in Knightsbridge called Montpelliano, was that Jimmy Connors was um, either sending himself up or not. One didn't, didn't know with Jimbo. But he was um, holding his um, knife and fork with two hands, like, <laughs> like that. So if you remember his backhand. Um, Pedigree Mongrel is a experiment which um, I was partly recruited for by Chris because the Museum of Loneliness um, had um, a cover by um, Emma Matthews, Mrs. Pettit, um, which I kind of adored. And it made me think, well, there's, there's something in this um, spoken word uh, malarkey um, and uh, it was a kind of um, an adventure and it turned out to be a pleasurable adventure um, the stuff is, there are four pieces uh, three are from extant works one is from a book that um, I'm currently writing it's told in the first... Per the book is entirely told in voices. This is told in the first person by a teenage um, Jewish, Pierre Noir, in Algiers in 1962. Um, it was a year that had a huge influence on me. The school I was at recommended to parents who were sending their children to France to improve their French before they took their O-levels, that it might be a good idea if they sent them instead to Belgium because France was on the point of civil war. Um, my father 
said, well, all the more reason to send the brat then. Um, so off I went to Lyon, where for the first time in my life, I saw two things. I saw graffiti, which was completely unknown in Britain at that point. Um, and I saw refugees, the um, dispossessed of um, Algiers and Oran, who arrived with nothing. Um, and my sympathies were always with that very unfashionable cause and with the people who fought for it. Um, and this is um, about one member of, a boy member of the OAS. The scents of my early teens were barbecued lamb and burning buildings. We listened to yeah yeah and explosions, doo-wop and gunfire. We picnicked on rocks under stone pines. The sea lapped our feet whilst a war raged around us. We danced the Madison on a battlefield's edge. We couldn't admit that paradise was provisional, that our heaven on earth was turning into hell, a hell we would have to flee. Lime sorbet tastes of immeasurable loss. I can still see it as though it were yesterday, in Devupta's window on Rouge. Chocolate brown corduroy, lanyard thick, cardan style, collarless. It was the day before my 14th birthday when my father refused to buy me that jacket. I'd set my heart on it. In his opinion, it looked Bavarian. It was Bavarian, the collarlessness. That was it then, nothing more to say. I didn't know where in Germany Bavaria was, but because he had spoken of it so often, I did know that it was the fount of the greatest evil. The wasted jacket he bought me instead had a collar, a narrow rounded lapels, three buttons, raised stitching, a flap over the breast pocket, a single vent. I liked it well enough. His uncle and two cousins had died in Buchenwald. Was I even then, all those years ago, a Jew? My mother was not Jewish, so I was not a Jew according to the dictates of Judaism. My father was non-observant. He could not reconcile modern science with the ancient faith of his and my ancestors. Even though one of them, a rabbi, had given his life for being a Jew, the Ottoman military governor had decayed before the French arrived, we French. Nonetheless, so far as he himself was concerned, my father was not a Jew, or only on his own terms. He considered himself above tribalism, above cults and sectarianism. Ahavaf Israel was divisive. He insisted, for example, mistakenly, with wearisome obstinacy, that Eichmann's crimes had been against all humanity. In his version, it was humans, not Jews, whom Eichmann had deported to their death. This does not accord with Eichmann's own statements to Hearst, the Auschwitz commandant. My father believed that being Jewish didn't mean belonging to a religion, obeying what he called its archaic foibles and murky prescriptions. He even claimed to despise dietary regulation. He pretended to take pleasure in eating pork, but in truth he never touched it. 
I doubt that he ever tasted, for example, Sobrasata or Blanquicos or Longanis, what he might, had he lived so long, have learnt to call King Rabbit. Being Jewish on his own terms meant having a Hippocratic duty to the sick, whoever they were, irrespective of faith, and having a humanistic duty to succour the oppressed, Edem. We who have been oppressed throughout all history must side with anyone else who is oppressed. We must care for them because only we have shared their fathomless suffering. Only we have both the competence and the charity to alleviate it. We are chosen because we own extreme empathy. Well, in a rather different register, um, this is a bit of um, Pompey that is on um, the record, uh, on pedigree mongrel. Meet Ray Butt. But which butt? Butt of the joke? Butt the buttest? Butt the drunk they cut from the wreck in a coma with the inside of his wife's face all down his dinner suit. He was a pioneer of the shawl collar look too. But the loyal widower of loyal Heidi, but the father to the triplets, John, John, Sonny and Laddie, the three little surprises, the boys. But the son to May and Harry. My dad, drunk so much Jenny did, they dressed him up in a coffin like a beef eater. But the brother of Daff, a living legend in G&G. But the employer and patron of poor Eddie Valander. Reg voices Ray Butt. Ray Butt, medical curiosity and prosthetic bodge. But the putative stepson of a man young enough to be his son. You boys are going to have to look into this well and thorough. The dreamer, the penitent visionary, God's toolkit. Hailing Island's most favourite child. Meet Ray Butt, who's all of these and more besides. Man of contrast, man of parts, some of them titanium steel, some plastic, some Gore-Tex, some Dacron, some Porcine, some he came with. That purring whir, those thuds against the wainscot, that crack, the curse that follows and the muffled oaths of self-contempt. These are the sounds of Ray Butt coming to greet us. Respect, show it, this is a star, is. Once a star opines Reg's voice, the man the stars confide in. Once a star, always a star. A star, a true star, never loses that indefinable something, that special je ne sais quoi. Not even when that true star is only just over half a star, when so much has been cut away, replaced, replicated. No, because stardom comes from the very soul. The soul, then, is not to be found in the kidneys, the legs, the colon, the hair, the teeth. It comes from the very heart. Parts of Ray Butt's heart are admittedly his own. Indeed, since no one else claims them, he owns even the parts he didn't grow, the spare parts. They're his own too. Who'd want them? Tell you what, you tell me the name of geezer or buyer used pacemaker with 15,000 on the clock. Now, tell you what, I'll tell you his name. <laughs> eh? Beg pardon? Pardon my swaley. That's Mr. C. Ant. My mistake. That purring whir. Another onomatopoeia, a splintering falsetto. That's the blue, blue bohemian off the occasional table. You'd have thought that he'd have learnt by now to steer it better. 
butt of the aim. But then you remember it was bad driving that got him started at this. Bad driving and all those be bevies and the row with Heidi she began as they crossed the Hamble Bridge at Bursledon. A row about an imaginary popsy, about some transgression he'd never even made, not in a million years, not on his mother's eyes, swear, family and that. But you've got to be friendly to the hired helps, even if they are in fishnets with legs up to their oxters. Silly thing to spat about, but then she'd had a few too. Foden, a sort of furnace. Its headlights, which were eyes, became a consuming mouth. The lorry ate Heidi. And do you know, the driver, who was a fan, never drove again. Not after what he'd done to that little ray of human mirth. Of course he was a fan. Who wasn't? And of course he blamed himself. Who wouldn't have? The man who drove the lorry that crippled Ray Butt. It was an accident. God bless, it wasn't his fault. But nonetheless, Ray Butt. It's not like gimping a nobody. By chance, Ray's earliest ambition, he confesses, was not to be a nobody, writes Reg Voice, fiercely determined to be a somebody. He's achieved it in spades, but not, he admits with his usual modesty, about a lot of luck along the way and some terrific sorts giving me a hand up on the way. Here he comes. Here it comes through the door. Solid grey rubber tyres, iridescent metal tubing, upholstered armrests, bespoke those, rods and leaves and levers, spherical black knobs, and there's a piece of a man in it, the leftovers of a life, a little bit of body and a lot of car rug, dress Stuart. This, though, is no car. You can't call it a car, no. Cripple trolley, barter bus, delaynomobile, spaz wheels, gimp pram. Yes, this is a vehicular prosthesis with its own prostheses. A battery like a cubist bum beneath the seat. Tensile rails, screws, wing nuts, folding tackle. These are the supports of the chair, which is his support. Life's like that. We need props to sustain it. Ray Butt's life is more like that than most. The more life he tucks under his belt, the less of him there is. The greater the store of props he needs. Consider how much the truncated original bit of Butt must carry in order to be. He's a refurbished ruin. From the north, toop, bifocals on a cord, hearing aid on the blink, clackers, pacemaker, some clerk's kidney, colostomy, hip custom built from petroleum byproducts. Every time he's aped, every time a car crashes and the life goes out inside it, there is a surgical opportunity, the possible possibility of further bricolage, a gland, a spleen, a lung. But is an orphanage for organs, for yards of blood and freshest flesh. Is this the butt we want? Uh, not yet. <clears throat> the trees that line the avenue of life we all must walk down cast ever-changing shadows on us. We are in constant creatures. The butt we want is the one way back there, glowing in dapple, lit through a spring's leaf, etc. Literally lit through smoke and breath at the Cardiff Palace, the Burslem Rex, the Hippodrome in New Cross. Uh, this is not the butt that talks about the avenue of life. This is the butt that leers, cocky and brill-creamed, that struts the stage, that lifts his middle finger, runs it under his nostrils, which dilate as he says, sniff, sniff, what's that? What's that? Smells like fish to me. His wink is lewd. He repeatedly crooks the finger, a slim sexual limb exposed the guffawing gorblimes, the chairs, the mops, the rookies with berries on their shoulders, the broken teeth demobs, they howl when he says, anchovy. They know he's going to say it and they still howl. But never died, not even at the Glasgow Empire. 
Timing, that was it. It must have been. It wasn't the material, certainly not the material that Reg Voice records. <laughs> My mother-in-law's a gem, she is a treasure, honest, the crown jewels she is. So why hasn't anyone tried to steer her? Do you tell me, why hasn't anyone tried to nick her? Brings the house down, apparently. I should ask you, on the, as they do on uh, TV sports shows, what next? Um, well, a, f a film about Mussolini's architecture and um, a book of which you've heard part, which is probably, which that actually gives a kind of pretty good idea of the kind of chaos that, um, was, that was lived at that time in Algiers. Um, with lots of competing noises and voices. That's just one voice in a, a book which is kind of fairly complicated, which I may one day find the key to. Thank you very much for what you've done so far. Um, I had a question about the pedigree mongol composition, the, the creative aspect of it. Um, obviously, the words have you know, quite a lot of work behind them. You've written them in a greater context. Uh, Jonathan, what did you think about um, how the words were somehow diminished or in competition with the other sounds? Um, if I thought they were diminished, I, I wouldn't, um, wouldn't have done it. I mean, it's, it, it turns it into something completely different. Um, I think if you, if, if, if you read in any form to an audience, uh, you're making a different compact with each member of that audience than you would if the, the audience as individuals are reading from, from the page. Um, it, it's a different thing. It's an ad adaptation. It's not um, evidently a literal representation of um, that particular chunk of prose. Um, and I like the way that Mordant um, described it as um, the, the, the text was smeared, um, which um, makes it sound kind of like, um, you know, his personal skid mark. <laughs> so in, um, I think in 1997, you wrote a piece called Anti-Urbanism's Ancestry about um, sort of suburbanism and this English sort of horizontal impulse with cities and you're, you're talking about London and about how London might or might not develop um, and I think you sort of said that you know what we don't need is garden cities what we need is sort of cities like horizontal vertical dense cities in this country and I just wonder what, what you think about how um, London and how this well how London specifically has developed since 1997 the eve of new labour um, and that urban renaissance was there an urban renaissance? What, the, what there was has been kind of class clearance. Um, people move, the, the people who are not well off moved out to, so to speak, beyond the ring road. And this, this has happened in, uh, not just in London, it's happened in Manchester, Birmingham, in nearly all the big cities. Um, the flight from the cities in the late 19th century was occasioned by the fact that cities had become toxic and there were factories, they were polluted. Now that cities are no longer like that, uh, people with money who fled to 
say in London to Bromley and Beckenham, say in Manchester to uh, Nutsford, um, now have moved back into cities and to make room for them, the um, service classes, if you like to put it like that, um, have been moved out. Um, so from what was effectively the American model, where inner city stands for deprivation, junkies, etc., etc., um, we move to the French model, where inner cities are beautifully kempt and all the problems are out in the banlieue, and this is the way we're, way we're heading. Um, as for garden cities and so on, I think garden cities, like any other form of planned uh, human habitation, have the problem of homogeneity and can't allow, they don't allow for the accidental. Um, London is particularly good in allowing for the accidental, or has been for, for, for a long time, um, in a way that, say, Paris hasn't. I mean, Paris has become a museum of itself. London has gone completely um, the other way. Well, what led you to move from London, where you lived for um, many years? Caprice, whim, something like that. Um, I'll probably, I'll, you know, doubt, no doubt, you know, I will move back, um, but um, it's, um, I find it uh, interesting to sort of have an experience of some, somewhere else, having lived in London since I was in my late teens. I think you made a better choice than I did, because I moved to Hastings. <laughs> well, Hastings is being talked up, I mean, um, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but Hastings can never really, um, Hastings and North Kent, uh, you have pro infra infrastructural problem. Um, the train from um, Rochester to London Bridge is only three minutes faster than it was when Dickens died. Um, so the entire North Kent literal is um, hugely disadvantaged by the fact that it's, for the most part, not commutable. And the same, same, same goes for Hastings, which is only 60 miles, but it takes about three and a half hours to drive, yeah. as you know. As I know. Question um, following on from your answer to the last question, I mean, Pompey, you love Pompey, or you write about Pompey a lot. What, what's your view on how Portsmouth Pompey has altered over the years? I mean, they've demolished the tricorn, um, which you've, you've that says about. it all. They demolished the tricorn, um, and the, the greatest brutalist building in Britain, without yeah. any doubt. Um, uh, so, what wonderful chunk of uh, sculpture on a epic scale, and pulled down like Rodney Gordon's building in Gateshead, the famous famous car park. Um, which actually was not just a car park. There were the, at ground level, that, that too was a, a, a exceptional. I mean, I, I, I saw the tricorn um, in my late teens when it was um, finished but not yet occupied. And it, it was the most startling thing. Um, I mean, admittedly, I, kept, I, I was still living in Wiltshire then and um, you didn't get modern architecture in Wiltshire. But you didn't get modern architecture like the tricorn 
there's virtually nothing else. It, 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 was, um, it was peerless um, and pulled down by kind of corporate vandals. Um, uh, I mean, there's a certain irony in that um, Portsmouth built at great expense a thing called the Spinnaker Tower as some kind of millennium, um, I don't know, celebration of the millennium. And the day that it opened, the architect of the wretched thing got stuck in a lift um, inside it for four hours, and one <laughs> thought, you know, there is justice. There's quite depressing Grand Designs several years ago did a kind of public program on which people voted for their most hated buildings. And more or less everyone, as you can imagine, was a, was a kind of masterpiece of uh, modernist or brutalist design. Yes, but I mean, I think the great thing is now that you've got a generation which has come up which can look at this stuff Hathley, Wilkinson, Wiles, etc., et um, and they they look at the stuff and they realise how good it was. It t it takes quite a long time before you um, before stuff is uh, architectural thought is often way ahead of the thought of um, you know uh, the the creature called the man in the street, um, and it takes a long time before stuff is appreciated. It took right from the end of Victoria's reign, it took half a century before the stuff of Pilkington or Butterfield or Toulon was properly appreciated. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And it took... Um, 40 years for um, Art Deco to be appreciated. So stuff needs to be left for a time to kind of settle and um, not become um, a, a very, very soft target for the deep-thinking Prince of Wales. <laughs> and is there anything now? Because, I mean... I live in the city of London, and it seems that they haven't put up a decent building in years. Um, everything has become much more like uh, the, the American model, where you build for the short term, and, and stuff gets replaced. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it's, it seems vaguely shocking that um, Grimshaw's building for the Western Daily Press, I think it's Western Daily Press, in Plymouth, um, that people want to pull it down now, and it's only it's only built in the in the early nineties. Um, whether it'll be saved or not is um, is moot, but it, it's too early to to um, decide. Now, taste takes a long time to to you know it, it, it's a it's a slow process.
it's it's really just to pick up on that point. I, I read somewhere that I could never been able to stand it up that buildings are at increased risk of being demolished for 60 years after they're built, and then the process reverses. So for the, the next 60 years, they're, they're increasingly safe until they're 120 when they're okay unless they get bombed. Well, it, and it, I think that that seems to be bearing out what you what you've just said. Yeah, the, I mean the, 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 the short termism is is becoming really rather. It's kind of major irritant because uh, London has turned into a building site, and perfectly okay buildings are being knocked down. The other week, Ricardo Bofield was talking at the Architectural Association, and um, in um, an interview he did prior to his, his talk, he um, was saying that the, one of the most important things architects should be looking at is how to transform what is already there rather than just demolish it and start again. But obviously the pressure of the construction industry, um, which is always in bed with whoever's in government, um, is such that the option is always to demolish and rebuild because there's, you know, there's much more money that way. But I mean, there's so many empty properties in London that one could, you know, resolve the crisis of, of rough sleeping overnight if there was if there was a will to do it. That there ain't. I wanted to um, ask you, as as a, a former uh, food critic, how you feel about um, in London anyway, sort of gourmet food. Often being the sort of the herald of, of gentrification, what's the sort of the cost benefit? <laughs> I haven't written about food for fifteen years, um, so I'm very much out of the loop, and I don't take kind of particularly great interest in it. I mean, my interest in it was that I got very well paid for doing so. Um, I, 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 a lot of the food I ate kind of I was, I was kind of indifferent in, in to it but I mean yeah there is the, the, that gentrification process always starts with someone who calls themselves an artist um, followed by uh, some very necessary scented candle shops um, <laughs> and um, then perhaps a, a sort of bistro or two um, but yes, it is, it, I guess it is a herald. But I don't think gourmet... I think gourmet food is kind of... No, but I mean, with or without quotes, um, the, um, it tends not to... That, that tends to be in a place which is already established. It'll, at first, it'll be kind of, you know, uh, little, I don't know, tapas bars or whatever the current craze is. And, and then you get the more high-end places, I suspect. I, I, I don't know. I, I, once I stopped writing about it, I, um, a sort of massive indifference came over me. I think the big change in the last 40 years was the rise of the chef, the comedian, and the architect, who pretty much monopolised... Um, yeah, some... Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the one can't cook... Um, the other's not funny, and the other puts up <laughs> bloody awful buildings. Um, and there we are. <laughs> yeah, oh, hi, yeah. Uh, actually, following on from the, the, uh, the point just made about restaurants, um, 
is one of the big problems, I think, in all our cities and indeed um, uh, smaller towns is the, the corporatization of, of our culture in terms of food, uh, in terms of where we shop, in terms of the lives we lead. And there are so many people who live in this out-of-town existence or they go to what's what's the place near here we just passed on our way zizi or other made-up names unfortunate name what do we do about this because to me uh that's that's the real big problem and the fact that big business and the whole political process all the political parties are all, are all sort of in cahoots on this what do well, we do one, one, one thing to do is do what they do in spain and you don't you don't have a uniform business rate and uh, also the times of openings of um, shops and department stores and so on are uh, regulated. So somewhere like huge El Corte Ingles can't open for as many hours as a small sort of mum and dad um, salumeria or charcuteria or whatever they're called in Spain. Um, so so there, there, there is a kind of positive discrimination in favour of small businesses. Um, and that seems to be the case. I don't, I don't know what the rules are in France, but I mean, that seems to be the case too. Um, the, here, obviously, corporatism has gone wild and, and went wild many years ago when Mrs Thatcher came, came to power, and no one has even thought of reversing it. I mean, New Labour was, of course, just a continuation of, you know, social Thatcherism, really. Do the Spanish still do lunch? Yeah, at about four o'clock in the afternoon. No. <laughs> Proper lunch? Yeah. No, no prêt-à-manger? No, no, no. And, 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 and France does, too. I mean, France, I mean, it's very dangerous to kind of go out round about midday because the French are racing home for lunch. Um, and the, a lot of Americans working in France complain that this is, you know, this is the true French disease. Although, you know, it, do, it doesn't seem to jeopardise productivity at all. It's just that people work at different hours. They, they start much earlier in the morning. Now, I think Pret-a-Manger was one of the big turning points in the last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, how? <laughs> Well, I mean, in, so, in some ways, it's preferable to get something which is reasonably fresh. And if you won't yeah, remember the kind of curled... Oh, do you remember sandwiches the, in Grays Inn Road? Uh, yes, I do, actually. Um, and or, or those, those places are kind of really, re really gross. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I hold no brief pret-a-manger pret at all, or for Starbucks or Cafe Nero or any of these. But I, when I was in Oxford last, I wanted to get some coffee, and I went into the Oxford market mm. and had something truly disgusting. I think it was, it was probably it's a Nescaf espresso yeah. or something. It was, it was awful, and, so, and you, could, you can actually get decent produce in these places, and so they're not necessary to be entirely decried. Um, do you think we'll ever do um, urban planning or urbanism uh, properly uh, in the European way in this country? Is that not to be wished for? With I don't know if it necessarily is proper, properly in it, it, what, what happens in Europe. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's just um, different. And I, as I say, I think we are moving towards that, in hurtling towards it, actually, in the way that, that, that counts, you know, people have been decanted out 
of inner city uh, social housing. And it's being redeveloped. I mean, the Belfrontier, for instance, Goldfinger's thing near the um, Blackwall Tunnel. That, that's what's happening there. Um, it, it, you know, the, the appeal of the so-called luxury flat to the construction industry is, is, is great. Um, I remember in a, I think, early noughties documentary about architecture, you compared a piece, I can't remember which building it was, to um, a new Labour soundbite. And I was wondering what your opinion on the sort of current crop of buildings with gimmicky nicknames that kind of have a sort of big public profile and appear as kind of silhouettes on postcards and things. Do you think the gherkins and the shards are good for architecture or give us a pithy soundbite about them? Well, I, 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 the, the word I used was a sight bite, which is the um, kind of the, the visual analogue of, 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 of the sound bite. And um, I, I'm not a particular fan of um, New London architecture, um, but I, I don't know what... I, the, if you want to see good architecture in Britain, uh, in Europe at the moment, you go either to, to Holland or to Spain. And I mean, when you go across the border from France, which is, whose architecture, and especially its domestic architecture, is probably worse even than that of Britain. Now, these petits pavillons absolutely everywhere, and it's very easy to build them because the uh, local mayor can affect a change of use just with a signature. So uh, a field which 500 years has grown grain can be turned over to um, a little... Lotissement of, um, of, of pavillon. Um, and these pavillons are exactly the same all over France, save that in the Basque country they have plastic beams attached to the outside. Um, and in Poitou Charente they're yellow, in Provence they're pink. When you go from the wretched French Basque country into Spain, it's um, an extraordinary culture shock. I mean, you, you go from the dross into um, exceptionally well-designed new housing, um, new offices, new industrial plant, etc. Um, and it's um, it's partly to do with a, a kind of rigor in 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 in, in planning. Um, Holland, the the stipulations are very strict. A Dutch architect. I know who works out of Froningen in the north, loves getting jobs in Belgium because no one bothers to, you know, you can do what you like. It's kind of free for all. Um, whereas Holland, it, you know, is strict. And, but that strictness shows, I mean, it, it's, on a, it's sensationally good what's happening there. Isn't the problem with these showcase buildings that you, the, the problem is not so much with the outside, but the inside, which are... Um, basically offices which are all the same as each other and no attention is actually paid to the kind of working um, conditions. I've never managed to get into one of them. Oh. <laughs> I, I've, having said which, I've never actually wanted to. I, mean, I, 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 I try to feign an interest from time to time, but it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's completely bogus. I've got two questions, if that's allowed. One is, has there ever been a successful resistance to regentrification? And the other is, would you like to say a bit more about your sympathy for the OAS? Um, 
has there been a successful what to regeneration? Resistance? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I haven't, I haven't, um, haven't seen it. I mean, at the moment, for instance, there is a big campaign which seems all but lost to save Earl's Court and the entire area between Warwick Road and North End Road to the north of um, Old Brompton Road. Um, whether that'll come off or not, one doesn't know. But I mean, there, there are all sorts of things under threat, like the Knightsbridge Barracks, um, which, sure, the 20th century society will kick up a fuss, but that they, they're kicking up a fuss is not going to go far against the sort of millions of pounds that that site is actually worth to a developer. My sympathy for the OAS is this. Um, Albert Camus said, I, I, I prefer um, my mother to justice. Um, and uh, the deal that um, was uh, dealt to the Pied Noir was grotesque. I mean, they were, they, were, they, were, they were abandoned by de Gaulle. De Gaulle used Algeria as a way of staging a bloodless coup. Um, and um, thousands of people uh, lost absolutely, absolutely everything. So it's hardly surprising that there was um, a kind of armed resistance. They weren't fascists. A lot of the people who fought for the OAS had been in the resistance. The people who were fascists were the Babus who were sent in by de Gaulle's government to try and sort out the OAS. They, they tended to fail. Um, but I, I think that it's rather having sympathy with the OAS is rather like having sympathy with, say, um, the Orange Order or Israel or Serbians. Um, th they do have a case, but it's not represented properly in this country. Hi, thanks. Um, I was just wondering if there's any plans to make any more of the telescripts available anywhere. I think the thing that really interested me seeing some of them in Museum Without Walls was just seeing the details of the shooting locations. And for a lot of those 90s shows, um, the locations whip past so quickly and with no real information. You're sort of like, oh my God, what the hell was that? Oh, and it's then gone. Um, particularly the one I was watching recently on churches. And there was so many um, marvelous buildings. And uh, sometimes you feel like, oh, I think I've seen that somewhere, but I don't know where it is. And I think that the nice thing about seeing those those scripts were the, the, the location information sometimes. But it, also the text is marvelous too. But. I just wondered if they were going to be made available in some other way, like what, the, another the, collection the, the, or something. Yes, yeah, it's, it's possible, yeah. I, I, I'm, do, I'm doing another book of journalism, which, uh, having done one called Peter Knows What Dick Likes, this one's going to be called um, Pedro and Ricky Come Again. Um, the, and it will include certain scripts. I don't, I don't, we, we don't put the things called Astons, i.e. labels saying what is what, in the, in the actual shows simply because it's so visually ugly. I mean, it, it, and you have them all the time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a decision I took many, many years ago to, to um, 
use long words so people have to buy dictionaries and um, obscure sites so they kind of scrabble around in their personas. <laughs> what are your budgets like now compared to 20 years ago? They're very small indeed. Um, uh, <laughs> they're ridiculously small. Um, you know, we, we, we used to kind of travel around in convoys. We now travel around in one smart car. I heard something about drones being used for Ben building. Yeah, I, well, there's an idea I have, because I mean, drones are actually very cheap now. They're far cheaper than using a jimmy jib or a crane or something. And I'm not interested in bird's eye things with drones, but using doing sort of POV where you kind of look at something and then you show it with a drone which is about a metre higher than I am. So you're getting a very odd angle which is not going to be understood immediately but after a time will become apparent as if there's a, a sort of, you know, you're looking from a, a, a giant or small giant's um, point, point of view. <laughs> I mean, whether it'll work or not, I, I don't know. But I'm, I'm kind of fasc I'm fa fascinated by them because they, 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 you can use them very, very accurately. And um, obviously, you know, they can be abused. Um, you know, if you if what in New York is called a bimper, um, you can send a, a drone to someone's bedroom window and kind of look look through it. And Bill Buford wrote about this very well, actually. The, cra the craze in New York for spying on people um, with very very big telescopes, and that now the telescope is superseded and you can use a drone. I like to be of assistance. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm from the countryside in the middle of nowhere, and I've come to London many years ago, and I live in a flat and I love it. I'm slightly concerned about the fact that many of my colleagues who are in their 20s and 30s, and indeed my age in the 40s, in their 40s, believe that they deserve to have a semi-detached house within, you know, the M25. And I can't describe to them how this is not a reality. And they should maybe, you know, if they want to live in central London, they should think in a different way. And I would really like to know how you think I should tackle the problem. <laughs> I, 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 I'm afraid I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> the problem, what, the, my, my um, problem is that I have many colleagues who live in very small flats and want to live in semi-detached houses within London, but they believe that it's their right. And obviously this will never happen, but they still persist in the fact that it's their right as an English person to live in a semi-detached house wherever they feel that they want to be and I would like to persuade them of the fact that this may not be a reality in central London or indeed in greater London um, uh, because I don't believe it is and I think that if they want to live here they should you know conform slightly to the expectations of everybody else so if you could give me any kind of um, help <laughs> I would appreciate it well, I mean, what you could advise your friends to do is go to a workshop for the delusional. Um, I, I mean, the, the idea of entitlement to a particular form of housing seems kind of... Um, it seems rash. 
Um, however, um, were this country to behave like any other moderately civilized country and build social housing, there would be a something of a solution, but um, the chances of that happening under any foreseeable government seem, seem frail. I recently stumbled across Ian Nairn, and I just wondered what kind of influence he had on your worldview and writings. Well, I think he's terrific. I mean, what wonderful writer. I mean, there are lots of wonderful writers, and certain of them make no difference to one's own writing, other, other ones do, and I think Nairn most certainly did. Um, I mean, uh, I wouldn't go so far as, I mean, I don't believe in the idea of role models or role supermodels or um, anything like that, and um, I certainly wouldn't like to end up like Nairn, who was drinking, you know, one lunchtime I had dinner, uh, lunch w with him, he drank 13 pints. Um, on another occasion, he was on a diet and he drank 11. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to, and he looked like he was dropsical. Um, but as a, a writer, he wrote one truly great book, Nan's London, and um, quite a lot of very trenchant and interesting journalism. He was much better in Nan's London than he had been earlier on because he'd become very, very Catholic in his, in, his, in his taste. He felt betrayed by the architects of his generation. He thought they were, you know, as famously said, you know, English architecture is just not good enough. Um, and he, um, he made some delightful films, um, which um, I would say his prose most certainly did influence me. His films didn't. I don't, the films had rather poor production values and they're kind of unpolished, and he didn't write scripts. He kind of extemporized, um, which, and it shows. Um, he's, you know, very. That's part of the appeal. Do you think? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like improvisation. Um, I like rehearsed improvisation. <laughs> and on that, yes. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>